All right, our scripture that we are looking at is uh, John 2, 1 through 11. That can be found on the back of your bulletin or on the screen. And this is about Jesus' first miracle, changing uh, the water, turning the water into wine. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the benefits of my job is I get to conduct weddings. And it's always fun being a, a part of that process. And it's very interesting weddings these days, you know, as I learn more about them, how expensive weddings are. Oh my goodness, they're unbelievably expensive. I was doing some research on this because I have plenty of time on my hands. And, and the question that a lot of people, uh, you know, brides and families of brides are asking is, how much is enough? So I did a little research on the 12 most expensive weddings that have ever occurred, just in case you wanted to try to make the list of the most expensive weddings. And let me give a couple of them to you here. Uh, number six on the list, Liza Minnelli and David Guest. Eliza, a Broadway uh, star, and uh, David Guest, a music producer. The cost of the wedding, $4.2 million. And why not? The best man was Michael Jackson, the maid of honor, Elizabeth Taylor. There was a 60-piece orchestra with Tony Bennett, Stevie Wonder, and Natalie Cole also giving performances. They spent $700 thousand dollars on flowers and forty thousand dollars on a cake i have no idea how one could spend forty thousand dollars on a cake that is some really nice flower by the way isn't it and that was number six how about number two vanisha mittal and amit batin uh the cost of that 62 million dollars the bride was the beautiful daughter of billionaire steel magnate Lakshmi Mittal, and the groom was a London-born banker. The wedding featured invitations mailed in silver boxes, including plane tickets and rooms at a five-star Paris hotel. Five-day festivities at a 16th-century chateau uh, and a temporary wooden castle. Now, why one would build a temporary wooden castle for a wedding, I have no idea. Complimentary Mouton Rothschild, I think we serve that actually at Redeemer, and designer gift bags filled with jewels. And of course, the number one, that wasn't, six, uh, that wasn't 62 million, that was 12, I was just joking on that. The number one, uh, Princess Charles and Lady Diana. Uh, inflation adjusted, $110 million for the wedding. 
The Bride, a stunning blonde preschool teacher who immediately became a, uh, became a global icon, and of course the groom, the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth II. It was at St. Paul's Cathedral, and it was attended by dozens of royals, two million spectators, and a global TV audience of 750 million. Diana wore a puffball meringue wedding dress. I love that puffball meringue, by the way with a 25-foot train of ivory taffeta and antique lace, 27 wedding cakes, and a five-foot-tall main cake, which supposedly took 14 weeks to prepare, with a duplicate cake made just in case of accidents. There you go. If you want to make the list, now you know where the bar is. Well, why am I talking about weddings? I'm talking about weddings because Jesus reveals himself for the first time at a wedding. His first miracle in which he reveals himself to the world is at a wedding. Tell I know that the Bible is true. If I was going to do it, it would have been much more like a volcano had erupted and the lava was heading toward, you know, like a Pompeii sort of thing and Jesus swoops in and saves the town. But instead, he simply saves this couple from social embarrassment. There are really two stories to this wedding, uh, this sermon, if you will, or this passage. There's Jesus saving the wedding, but there's also the story of Jesus preparing for a wedding of his own. Jesus marrying his people in what was to be the most expensive wedding of all times. See, this story isn't just about a couple who are getting married. It's about Jesus getting married to us. And so we need to look at this story and see it not only as that wedding, but as our wedding. See, in this story, Jesus is giving us a wedding invitation. The question is, shall we receive it? Because how we respond to Jesus' invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. Either a feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. We're going to look at three specific points because we always look at three specific points. Number one, that Jesus is the master of the feast. Number two, Jesus is the means of the feast. And finally, number three, Jesus is the motive for the feast. So let's begin and point, uh, look at point number one, that Jesus is the master of the feast. This story here of this wedding starts as all stories do with a guy and a girl. And a guy fell, falls in love with a girl and wants to marry her. And so there's a process. Jewish marriage customs were a little different than American marriage customs. And the way it would work was something like this. A guy wanted to marry a girl, and so the guy would go to the girl's father. And they would uh, establish a bride price. This is what it would cost to have her. And they'd haggle, and they'd horse trade, and they'd come to an agreement. And then it was time for the, the girl to have a say. The man would take a cup of wine. It was called a kiddushim, which means a cup of holiness. And he would drink from it. And then he would give it to the woman. And if the woman agreed and drank from this cup, this cup of holiness, they would become married or betrothed to one another for the next year. She would literally be uh, set apart. That's what holiness means. She would be set apart and would wear a veil for a year before they consummated the marriage. Because what would happen is that the groom would then go away 
back to his house to prepare a place for them to live. He would build on an addition to his father's house. And then about a year later, he would come and he would take his bride and they would go to the wedding chamber and they would consummate the marriage. And then they would have a feast, a wedding feast, which was a big deal. So big that it would go on for seven days. It was like big deal like the, the silver box and the Mouton Rothschild's big deal. And one of the key components of this wedding was the serving of wine throughout of it. Because wine symbolized prosperity. And it symbolized joy. And it symbolized the favor of God. Indeed, in Psalm 104.14, it's put this way, that God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing food forth, forth fruit from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. To have wine was to show the favor and the prosperity of God. And there was a master of the feast who was appointed, a sort of MC, a conductor of ceremonies, kind of a, a Bob Knuth type character who loved a party and helped to keep the party going. But there was a problem. And the problem was this, toward the end of the feast, maybe day six or day seven, they began to run out of wine. This was a huge problem because if you ran out of wine, it communicated a message. The people would start to murmur. If this man can't provide for a feast, a wedding feast, how is he going to be able to provide for this bride? And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, thought of a solution. How Mary knew, I have no idea. But Mary came to Jesus and said, Jesus, they have no more wine, son. And Jesus looked at his mother and said, Woman, why do you bother me? My hour has not yet come. And yet Mary, like all mothers, is persistent. You can picture five guys standing around Jesus. They have no more wine. And so Jesus said to go to these servants, to go and fill these giant stone jars that each held 30 to 40 gallons with water. I've seen these jars, by the way. I've been to Cana in Galilee. Um, and they're these big jars, and they were filled to the brim. And then Jesus said, go and take some of this water, some of this, whatever's in there, to the master of the feast. And the water, of course, has been changed into wine. The master of ceremonies drinks the wine, which is the best wine he's ever tasted. And he makes this proclamation that all the other people, when they have a wedding, they put the best wine out first. And later, as people have drunk too much, they go ahead and they serve the cheap wine. But you have done the exact opposite. You've saved the best for last. The groom, of course, is hearing this. He has no idea how this has happened. But he's taking all the credit as a wise groom will. Yes, of course. Thank you very much. You can picture the bride beaming, looking at her husband. I don't know how you pulled it off, but that's my man. He's making it happen. The crowd is cheering because there's more wine. And we see that it's actually Jesus who's the master of the feast. Jesus' first miracle is to rescue a wedding with wine. Think about that. He takes a wedding and moves it from being a disaster to a delight. 
from great sorrow to joy. It shows that Jesus cares about the mundane, ordinary things in your and my life. I don't know the impressions that you have of Jesus. Maybe your impression is that he's an absent God. He's too busy to bother with the trifles of my life. He'd never be involved in the day-to-day minutiae. But we see that that's totally the opposite, don't we? Maybe you have an impression of a stern Jesus. He's wearing all black. He's saying when they run out of wine, serves them right. Right? They didn't ration. They've been drinking too much. Serves them right. Let them drink water. That wasn't Jesus either, was it? Maybe you have a picture of him of a weak Jesus. Mary comes to him and says, do something about this. But Jesus is unable. He just wrings his hands in the background. But Jesus doesn't do that either. He's not absent. He's not stern. He's not weak. He's the true master of the feast. And the reality is he's the master of the feast of life. Jesus said very clearly in John 10.10 that I came that you might have life and have it to the full. When he came to proclaim his message, he called it good news. He said, I've come to set captives free, to bring those in darkness to light, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's the God that turns water into wine and takes emptiness and in its place brings fullness. Jesus is all about the feast, and he's all about bringing life to life, not only in the present, but we know in the future, when the kingdom of heaven is spoken of, it's spoken of as a feast. Jesus intends to bring a feast for his people who believe in him. This is Isaiah 25, 6, that speaks of what heaven's going to be like. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will bring a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. See, there's not just a banquet in heaven. Heaven itself is a banquet because Jesus has come to bring love and joy. So how do you see Jesus? An absent, stern, or weak God? Or is he the master of your feast? See, the reality is we all run out of wine in life, don't we? We're always looking for the next fix looking for the next thing, fighting off the emptiness that creeps into our souls. We're searching for someone who can do something about that. And it's Jesus who can take ordinary foot water and turn it into wine. So be like Mary. Don't settle. Take the jars of our hearts to Jesus. And let him do his work and transform them into something from emptiness to love. Draw it out and taste and see that the Lord is good. And then celebrate. We must look to the master of the feast because he has the ability and the desire 
to take your ordinary life and make it extraordinary. This brings me to my second point. Jesus is not only the master of the true feast, he's the means of the feast. It's very clear that Jesus is thinking about something else as this wedding is going on. It's like he's on a different wavelength. How do I know that? It's from his response when Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why are you telling me this? My hour has not yet come. But what exactly does that mean? I always thought it meant his hour in terms of when he starts actually revealing himself through miracles. But if you read through the book of John, it's very clear that whenever his hour is referred to, it's always referred to as the hour of his suffering and crucifixion. He says, woman, why are you bothering me? My crucifixion, my suffering has not yet come. Jesus even said in John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. See, Jesus is talking about another time. He's actually thinking of his impending wedding. When Jesus is united with his church. Remember, the church is called the bride of Christ, isn't it? And Jesus is referred to in the scriptures as the bridegroom. John the Baptist actually talked about Jesus this way in John 3.29. The bride, meaning the church, the people belong to the bridegroom. The friend, who is John the Baptist, who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. See, the church... His people that he loves is his bride. And he intends to marry them. He intends to love them and to bring them to himself and to dwell with them in a holy communion. But how are they to be married? A holy God and a sinful people. There is a bride price to be paid. There is a cup to drink. And to have us, he must first drink, not the cup of joy or the cup of wine, but the cup of punishment. See, every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us does not deserve the love and the devotion of God. And so this cup, whenever the cup is referred to in the Old Testament, it's always referred to as a cup of punishment. Here, Psalm 75, 8, in the hand of the Lord, God, the Father, is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Full of foaming wine, uh, he pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Remember, Jesus, in the Last Supper, took the cup and said, take this cup. This is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was to be crucified, he said to his father, If it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but you will. See, this wedding that we're talking about here in this passage is a foreshadowing of the price that Jesus is going to pay on the cross. To set us apart, to make us holy and worthy to be married, he must pay. And so while everyone is partying, 
and having a great time because this wine has been brought out uh, through Jesus. Jesus is thinking about the suffering on the cross that he is going to undergo for you and for me. Jesus sat amidst the crowd, amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I today can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. This wine that brings joy is symbolic of his blood that brings life. And the cup that he drinks is the cup of death, so that when he hands it to us, it's the cup of life. So what must we do? We must recognize that there is another wedding that we can participate in who are his people if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the means of the feast. It's only through his blood shed on the cross. It's only through the gift that he holds out to us that we can receive and accept him, that we can become one with him. And so we must receive and respond to his invitation as he holds out his cup to us and says, will you be mine? Will you be joined to me? There are many cups that we drink from in this world to find life. The cup of prosperity, the cup of pleasure, the cup of power. But all of them in the end bring death. There's only one cup that brings life. There's only one cup that unites us to Jesus Christ. And that is the cup of his blood. It's the cup that sets us apart and makes us holy. So when Jesus comes to you and presents the cup, what will you do? Will you drink it and say, I accept your gift. I want to be yours. Or will you reject it? The choice is yours. For how we respond to Jesus' invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. A feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. This brings me to my final point, that Jesus is the motive of the feast. Why does God care so much, we may ask? Why is God willing to pay so high a price? Because this is clearly the most expensive wedding in the history of mankind. Jesus paid for it with his very blood, the blood of God. Well, I remember when I got married, when I fell in love, I met my wife-to-be, Ellen, and I saw her, and I met her, and I fell in love with her, and we had to be together. And I went and saved up my pennies to get a ring because no price was too high for me to have her as my bride. See, it's no different for Jesus. His motive for marrying us, his motive for throwing this feast is love. Think about that. The God of the universe, the Son of God, wants you. And so he finds us and chooses us and pays a steep price for us. You know, how much you love something shows how much you're willing to pay for it. Jesus goes and prepares a place for us, and he will take us to be with him. See, we just want to be guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus wants us to be the bride. He wants you and I for a soulmate, 
Now you say, may say to me, Carlos, but I'm not worthy. You're exactly right. You're not. And neither am I. See, it's all about the bridegroom. It's not about the bride. Back in ancient Israel, there was no bride magazine because it was all about the bridegroom. It was about his decision and his throwing of the feast and his gathering uh, his woman to be with him and consummating the marriage. You know, and as I spoke in the beginning of this sermon, I talked about weddings. And one of the great things about weddings is standing up here and the doors open and the music plays and the bride comes down the aisle. And she comes up and she stands across from the groom and the veil is lifted and, and her face is glowing. And the reason her face is glowing is because she knows I am loved. They did all of this for me. He did all of this for me. See, the beauty of the wedding supper of the Lamb is that we can live in expectation. We can live in hope. We can live in preparation because as we look at the cross, we can beam and smile and say, He must love me. He did all of this for me. Jesus is the master of the feast. He's the means of the feast. And He's the motive of the feast. And Jesus holds out the cup of His blood and says, Will you be mine? How will you respond? For how we respond to Jesus' invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. Either a feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. By God's grace, receive the love of the bridegroom. Drink the cup of his blood and celebrate the feast that has begun and will continue until consummation when we are with our Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what a beautiful picture. God, how, what it must have felt like to sit there amidst the joyful throng, thinking about the coming sorrow. The price that you paid for us is too high for any mortal to bear. And yet, you, the God-man, paid the price that we might be married to you. Oh, Jesus, let us receive this cup, this cup of life, this cup of forgiveness, this cup of reconciliation, and drink it to the full. Because it's not a cup of wickedness. It's not a cup of punishment. But rather, it's a cup of joy and life and forgiveness. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now we enter a time of worship through offering. We have placed an offering plate uh, outside in the foyer. If you wish to give your gift to Redeemer, you may do so on the way out after the service. If you are new to Redeemer, you're a guest here, uh, don't feel compelled to give in any way. We're just glad that you're here with us. Let me pray for our offering. God, I pray that you would use our offering to strengthen and build up your church uh, Lord, for uh, all the work that we're doing for the proclamation of the gospel, for the work of mercy and justice in this community. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.